the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, heroes face down tooth claw, rusty nail clippers, and a thick coat of pollen. Stone Age strife and talking toads with swords. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pincher. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor, Tony Daniel. We have another roundtable discussion this time with the authors of By Tooth and Claw, the second entry in a series that asks the question, what if intelligent cats fought with psionic dinosaurs in an alternate past where the meteor of dinosaur extinction never hit? Our roundtable participants are Mercedes Lackey, Eric Flint, Jody Lynn Nye, Cody Martin, and editor and Exiled series creator Bill Fawcett. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pincho. Here's the news. We have a really cool nonfiction piece on the front page of the Bain website, Bain.com, this month. The Distant Past, a setting for science fiction. We have Michael Z. Williamson's wonderful new time travel novel coming out next month. That one's called A Long Time Until Now. We'll have an interview with Mike on that soon here on the podcast. But in the article, Mike discusses all the research he did while writing the book. Down to cooking Stone Age goat on an actual stone. Mike shares the recipe for that, by the way, in the piece. Also, we have new fiction from Reiki Spore. It's called The Adventurer and the Toad. This story features my favorite character from Reich's high fantasy adventure, Phoenix Rising, and its sequel, coming in May, Phoenix in Shadow. I'm talking about Pop Block Duckweed, of course, a toad with a sword and a mission. So to get into the mood for Phoenix in Shadow, which I think turned out just dandy and is a first-rate sequel to Phoenix Rising, go ye to Bane.com and find Reich's story there. The Distant past a setting for science fiction and the adventurer and the toad are now available at bain.com and also in the free ebooks where we collect the nonfiction and the stories over at baneebooks.com want to welcome authors Eric Flint, Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Jody Lynn Nye and editor Bill Fawcett to the podcast. Hey folks. New York Times bestselling author Eric Flint is the creator of the legendary Ring of Fire alternate history series and many other science fiction novels. He's, he's appeared many times on the podcast and everyone knows him. Uh, Mercedes Lackey is the New York Times bestselling author of the Bardic Voices series and the Serrated Edge series, both from Bane, the Heralds of Valdemar series, and many more popular Bane titles are The Fire Rose, The Lark, and The Wren, as well as with Eric Flint and Dave Freer, The Shadow of the Lion and Burdens of the Dead. With her bevy of accomplices, Misty is also the co-author of four novels in the Secret World Chronicle. Cody Martin is one of the authors who is also one of the writers of that saga and has done yeoman work therein, I can attest to. 
Jody Lynn Nye is a New York Times bestselling author who lives in Illinois with her husband and cat, who she claims is a superior being. I don't know if that's the husband or the cat or both. Her numerous works of science fiction and fantasy include An Unexpected Apprentice and its sequel, A Forthcoming Wizard, Applied Mythology, Advanced Mythology, and others. She's collaborated several times with New York Times bestselling author Anne McCaffrey and with bestselling author Robert Asprin on Books in His Myths series. Her Imperium Jeeves-like rollicking space opera series includes The View from the Imperium and Fortunes of the Imperium with Rhythm of the Imperium coming in autumn. Uh, I think that that is what we're calling it, right, Jody? That is correct, Rhythm of the Imperium. As mentioned, Jody Lynn Nye lives in Illinois with her husband, noted editor, world architect, and book packager Bill Fawcett. Bill is the creator of the Fleet series of military science fiction novels with David Drake and the editor of over 300 science fiction and adventure collections anthology, Ubiquitous. Bill is also the editor of Exiled, Clan of the Claw, which is the first book in the Exiled series, and now out at booksellers everywhere, is by Tooth and Claw, Clan of the Claw, book two, the second entry in the Exiled series. Bill, I know there are even more books set in this series. Um, can you explain the milieu to us, the, the this really cool concept behind the whole thing, and tell us how it got started? Well, it all got started with Jody and I saying there weren't enough cats in books. It was a long time ago. <laughs> And we were saying, all right, we're going to do sentient cats. Wait a minute. Why would a cat bother to be sentient? It's a predator. It works 1% of the time and sleeps 68% and is tougher than anything on the block. And then we realized we needed a driver to create the sentience to, to make intelligent cats. And we thought about it and went, of course, the asteroid never hit the dinosaurs don't die out, and the mammals are in competition with growingly more intelligent small dinosaurs. And that is where the background first began on this. Now, as the f books open up in this series, in these first books that we've just done, Planet of the Claw, we have a period where they're basically in a large tribal area. Think of it as, as the pre-Babylonian period with the, the tribes of um, various areas forming little cities and groups, but not yet united into nations. And they are wandering across a world where there is one other difference. The Straits of Gibraltar have not broken, and the Mediterranean is a warm, jungle-like area broken by mountains, which are what we would call Italy. And they are moving into it as they press on the dinosaurs because the intelligent cats are winning the battle slowly but surely against the intelligent dinosaurs. And then as tribes are moving across this, the streets break, they give way, and in a matter of weeks, the Mediterranean Sea fills up and suddenly those tribes which made it out and made it to the far side find themselves exiled, stranded, all the way on the wrong North African side when they're trying to be in North Italy. And they have to work their way around. And this is a saga of how really the pressure of having to make that journey causes the Merem, the cat people, to learn their first lessons in uniting and to be something greater than just a tribe and to eventually evolve into a whole civilization that manages to finally put down the evil dinosaur. We call them the Lishkash Menace. 
And originally, back around 1988, there were four novels written by various people set in this world, and then we decided to revisit it, but they're set 2,000 years later in a period of almost medieval. So these current books are your biblical period and treated as such. Ah, so these are prequels to the books that already exist. The books that existed, yes. I see. 1,500 years, perhaps, before when before there were civilizations, before they were building big cities, the tribes were trying to come together and, in fact, are forced to come together because a large number of them are stuck on the wrong side of this newly formed ocean. And then I mentioned hundreds of thousands of magic-using evil dinosaurs. They're sort of psionic, right? They're, they're like A. Van Vogue Superman dinosaurs, or I don't know. They, they have the ability to manipulate the minds of others to affect them. Eric actually did a wonderful job on that, and he could probably speak to it further. He handled the, introduced the uh, mental magic in this. Well, he, he totally, uh, he totally uses it as a, as a great um, uh, MacGuffin in his story. I guess we'll ask him about that later, perhaps. Um, I wanted to ask Misty and Cody, uh, you are the authors of Bury My Heart, uh, the lead-off entry in By Tooth and Claw. Your hero in the story is Mrim, uh, who is the cat, that's the cat race, by the name of Sartus Rule. Sartus has a huge task before him, and he's got descent within the ranks to deal with. Um, can you sort of set up uh, what we, how we begin the story? Well, the, uh, we actually go to the flood. Um, and as a result of the flood, they lose all of their protective magicians, the dancers, because uh, we Cody and I had noticed that in the first book, first collection of the, of the new books, a lot of people had concentrated quite a bit on the abilities of the dancers, and we thought, well, all right, let's just take that completely out of the equation. So uh, they now, have... the dancers help the Marim resist the psionic powers, the magic powers of the dinosaurs. Or the... Correct. Okay. But oh, that's gone in this story. They, they do not have their dancers. This little tribe doesn't have them. And as a consequence, uh, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of dissent from uh, those within his ranks. So they're, they're saying, we can't possibly go on without the dancers. Plus, as they are migrating away from the, the continuing rising floodwaters, he has to deal with the members within his tribe that don't that, that think that oh can't possibly the water can't possibly rise anymore. Well, we need to just stop right here. Yeah, he's got. I mean, this is sort of a, a, a portrait of how you bring a people together from really rough times, right? Exactly. Sardis has a hidden strength in his mate, uh, Raisha, I believe. Can you sort of explain the, the male-female relationships between the Mrem and, uh, and your story? Um, the, the females are certainly not uh, hangers in the background among the Rem, right? Well, if you look at any cat species, the females are equal to, if not superior, hunters. Like, for instance, with the lions. Uh, female lionesses do all the hunting. 
the males basically get to be lounger abouts and mostly just protect the pride from other males. So there is, was absolutely no reason why we should not make female and male marim absolutely equal. Sure, and they have a they have a mutually uh, sort of beneficial relationship, Raisha and uh, and and Sardis. Well, that's the essence of a successful marriage, wouldn't you say, Bill? Absolutely. <laughs> doing what she tells me. <laughs> uh-huh. Actually, the, the 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 female cats, the female marim cat people in this, are the carriers of culture and magic. And the fun part about them is that it is not an oral tradition. They were, think of druids, but instead of using an oral tradition, they communicate through dance. They communicate the images of the story, the images of what's going on through dance as part of their culture. So they have these incredibly cat-like, graceful women dancing the history of the people and dancing the laws of the people in order to communicate it. And this is the dancers. They're like the shamans or the druids of uh, Celtic culture. Uh, now, is Sartus or Resha based on any cats you know? Not particularly. He's kind of the epitome of the, of the, of the male cat who is, um, who's still a Tom and has, had his, has been beaten up and has learned a few life lessons that others in his tribe of uh, tribal and and pride uh, business of a male is to maintain his ascendancy through combat. So, yeah, I mean, he's going to get challenged all the time, and he's going to have to fight back all the time. It's really a portrait of Sardis, the story, and he comes across as a really noble, noble uh, cat fellow. Um, and leader, and it's really cool the way he brings the, or tries to bring the tribe together, which is what the story's about, whether he succeeds or not. Let me ask Eric about his story. Your con- contribution to By Tooth and Claw is the long novella. Really, it's a short novel um, called Sanctuary. Um, Eric, can you tell us what Kororo Crack is? Yeah, it's sort of loosely, it's basically a religion. It's a church. Um, um, I didn't there have been enough stories, it seemed to me, already about basically barbarians hitting each other over the head. Um, so I wanted to do something different, and uh, I decided that what I would do is introduce the first sort of universal religion in this world. Uh, I did the same thing, actually, my first novel, Mother of Demons. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to—it does sound similar to the— uh... And then I made it the uh, um, a religion among the the uh, Lishkosh because I actually decided there'd been enough written about the Umram, and I actually got interested in these because uh, I hadn't been much done with them so far. So I decided I would see what I could do with that. Um, and then I was cussing Bill under my breath the whole time because I have a really hard time yes, dealing with, tele- with telepathy. Um, and <laughs> I yeah, knew he'd he, done it. He called up and chewed me out for letting him do what he wanted to write. <laughs> but I know. Uh, and, and it is true, as Bill pointed out, that I just made it more complicated, which is true, I did. Um, but uh, 
but it was the only way I could figure out to make it work for me. Um, I found it hard to write because I find telepathy difficult to work with. Um, and it worked out pretty well. I was actually wound up being quite pleased with the story. Um, but it was it was a bit of a struggle initially. Um, but that's why I did it that way. I wanted to do something um, different, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it's a hell of a hell of a story. It, it depends on this more subtle understanding of the mind domination magic or psionics or whatever the hell uh, that the Lishkash employ. How do how do you how do you figure that the Marim dancing cancels out this awesome ability? How do they interact? These two sort of um... I carefully and deliberately did not explain that because I don't have a clue. Um, <laughs> is the honest answer. Um, uh, this is where I said I have a problem with this, but I started just playing around with it, and I thought, you know, I bet if we do this and this and this, um, we can have something that's at least plausible, um, and that makes it possible. Well, what I wanted to do is get an interaction between the two species that was not, that was more complicated and that involved a certain amount of collaboration and cooperation. Um, and I couldn't think of any way to do that other than to have the action of the dancers somehow impact on the way that the, that the, the, the mind, you know, that the, the, the specific type of mental control that, what basically the, the uh, Crow or Cracker is trying to do is use an ability to meld their minds with predators to enable them to consecrate their minds so they can resist the power of the noble class. That's basically what they're trying to do. Now, please don't ask me to explain how that works, because it, <laughs> well, well, it's hand wavy. Um, they get to control some pretty cool dragon-like creatures, though. That's for sure. Yeah, Tony, um, one of the joys of doing this is the fact that I work with such amazing people who take things where you don't expect them. We created a super uber villain type that had everything going for it and was basically pretty cardboard in some ways and very strong in others. And Eric completely turned it around and, human, and, and turned them into real creatures with real things about them. And it's added just immense depth to the book, and it was great to read. Glad you liked it. Well, there's the uh, there's this kind of rapprochement between the species, um, but neither side really has only locally. Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's right. The bad guys still are there. Yeah, I, it's, I mean you have to be realistic about this. It's um, you know they're not going to sit down and start saying kumbaya together. It's just not going to happen. They're they're quite different in a lot of ways. Um, uh, well, the Lishkash are not very huggy for one thing. <laughs> No, they're not. And part of what I wanted to get into, and I tried to do it with that 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 Lishkash goddess of sorts, that, that that you know to explain why those those Lishkash females protected and and helped heal the uh, um, the Umram female whom they had sort of taken under their wing, and 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 it's more a matter of how they view. It's sort of a very cold-blooded way of looking at mercy. I mean, it, it, they sort of see it more as a matter of, of, of thrift, um, that it's just wasteful to kill somebody when there's no good reason for it. So it, they're not real touchy-feely at all. Um, 
not that the film rim are either, because they're predators, but still, there's going to be a difference in the way it would seem to me, in the way, you know, uh, and, and part of it also, which I discussed with Bill, is that the, the these guys are not actually cold-blooded. I mean, the, the distinction between warm blood and cold-blooded is a lot less simple than people often think it is. Um, well, that's the truth. If yeah, you, look, you know, if, so, if, they're, so they're, they're, I'm sorry, Mr. go ahead. If you look at uh, the recent uh, nurturing uh, discoveries in dinosaurs, um, yeah. it's pretty obvious that uh, especially the raptor types, which is essentially what the Lishkash are, mm -hmm. uh, nurtured and, and protected their youngsters until they were quite old. Yeah. There, there's a there's a dinosaur that they called the good mother. I've forgotten what her um, her technical name is, but yeah, they're making all sorts of wonderful discoveries, and it's it's adding depth to what we're doing. Well, dinosaurs are birds. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. yeah. Um, Misty, uh, well, I forgot to ask this question. Um, just I'd I'd like to ask a process question since you're the you and uh, Cody are the only. Uh, co-writers in the book. How did you guys uh, go about writing um, writing your story? Google Docs. We get in the document at the same time. Do you throw ideas back and forth? You're, you're actually writing together. We are literally writing together. It's a process we use in Secret World Chronicles a lot. Um, very seldom do any of us do anything solo. Huh. Are you on the phone at the same time? I'm just kind of fascinated by being able to do that. The document at the same time. Um, Cody has his strengths, uh, especially com describing combat, and I've got mine. And so, kind of, we we handle that. Uh, but we'll discuss over on the side what we want to do next, and then uh, we'll literally be in there at the same time. And it's it. It's actually pretty seamless. Has it? Um, does it affect the course of the plot? Do you change things as you go along, or? Well, Cody, oh, why don't you handle that one? Uh, yeah, yeah, we uh, are constantly uh, kind of reevaluating stuff, and what we usually start off with at the very beginning of the night when we uh, start writing uh, is to basically um, edit and review everything we did the night before. So. We pick up, you know, different little things here and there, and um, I don't know, as Misty said, at this point, we've worked out all the kinks, and pretty seamless. That's like a Marim and a Lishkash. Which one is which, though, in this relationship? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, let me ask... Uh, well, Misty would uh, prefer if I was chained to a uh, desk writing 24-7. Uh she she exerts a certain uh, uh, aura over you. Um, you guys have written a bunch of in, in the Secret World Chronicle, which is our uh, which is our series, um, and you do that basically the same way. Do all of you guys that are writing in that series? There's four, I think, four or five authors: Veronica, Drew, Gare, and and others. Is that how you do it? Well, um, when we have the great big. Climax stories at the end of each one where everybody's characters are all interacting at the same time. Yes, we do get all four of us into the document at the same time. Wow. That must be fun. It is. If challenging. How do you resolve a disagreement? 
Um, it kind of depends on what the disagreement is. Uh, since I've got more experience than anybody else, if this is something that I can say, well, I've been in, I've, I'm 64, I've been reading science fiction for 50 years, I've seen this done to death, we're not doing this, then we won't do it. <laughs> um, but if it has to do with characterization, uh, I've erased entire stories worth. I've erased five or six thousand words because somebody didn't like what what I had done with with the characterization of their character. So we just erase it and go back to the beginning. That's pretty giving. Well, do you have any rules? Don't kill each other's characters. It's all about the story. It's not about the ego. Yeah. Well, those books are great. Um, let me ask Jody, uh, Jody Lynn Nye, your contribution to By Tooth and Claw is called Feeding a Fever. Um, mm -hmm. here, here we encounter another remnant, Rem, Marim band, and who do we find? We find Jeeves, Jody. <laughs> do you have Jeeves on the brain? Um, tell us about Petru. No, they have, they have nothing to do with each other. Okay. In the first of the, uh, Clan of the Claw, collaborations. Uh, I was working with John Ringo, mm -hmm. and we worked out these characters uh, together, and at the time they, it was entirely separate from, from the Imperium books. The idea of making Petru valet to the dancers, somebody who actually takes care of them, was John's idea. Most of the cats in it are based upon John's cats. He had six at the time. Uh, various of, of our cats uh, are also in it, but Petru was uh, was one of his. Oh, so I mean, actual Great cats that belong to character traits are yes, an actual cat. Uh, okay, that belong to John and not only an actual cat, but an actual cat like Petru. Jody, tell him about the powder and everything. <laughs> uh, Petru had Petruchio was his name. Uh. Was was a very interesting cat. Uh, he had he had likes and dislikes, and one of the things he liked was to be dressed up. He liked to have glitter powders spread upon his fur. He had various uh, items of his own wardrobe, including scarves and shawls, boas, necklaces, all manner of things. So when John took him to the vet once, he had to bring along a suitcase of things that Petruchio liked to wear. And at first, the staff at the vet thought that uh, these people must be insane. And then they discovered, yet, yes, indeed, the cat liked to be dressed up. And <laughs> he got to be quite <laughs> upset when he didn't get uh, his, his glitter blown on him for the day. So this is a real cat. So you've cre you created a story here where they can't win just by bashing heads, our heroes. Um, is it harder to, it, does it inspire you to figure out new things when you, when you can't solve it through uh, sword play or, or whatever? Oh, yes. It's, I think it's a lot more fun to come up with an, a way of solving a problem that doesn't involve danger, high explosives, um, because this, the matter is just as serious. But with, given the characters that I have, yes, I could have made it a purely military operation in which they, they did what they could. I thought it was all to the better to give them a story in which they had to survive by their wits. Now they're sick in the story, um, and you know there was that. Uh, there's the the 
alternate theory of the dinosaur's demise about a disease that killed them off. Did that uh, inspire you in any way? I'm not. I'm not remembering at this moment precisely how that came about. Um, but I'm interested in biology, of course. And one of the things that I that I always find curious is what they call a zoonosis, which is a disease that can hop from species to species. Uh, in the same way that, well, AIDS, uh, Ebola, various other diseases have evolved in another animal, and has been passed humans. So in this case. What is defeating, what ends up defeating the lish cache is something they can't see. It's a microbe. They are, they are being beaten up by a microbe in the hands of Petru, who outsmarts them. He figures, he figures out when he sees the first lish cache going down with the, with the fever that he thought they could not catch, realizing he had a tool. Yeah, yeah. This, this gentleman is a little soft looking. He is not soft on the inside. He's very bright. He's very smart, and he absolutely defends his ladies. Yeah. For the sake of the dancers, he will do anything. Do you think? Uh, are we going to see Petru in a in a uh, further adventure? Oh, I should think so. I should think so. He's a marvelous character. Yeah, he's great. Um, well, one thing I wanted to ask all of y'all is um, when you're—it's another process question—but when you're writing um, these stories. How do you imagine the characters? Because, I mean, do you really not see them? Do you just get in their heads? Or do you see them as, as like the cat on the cover? I guess... Uh, I, I picture them. It, it helps me. I, I was a film major in college, and I, I, I think in a, in a sort of cinematic fashion. So I see these scenes evolving in my head, and I see my characters. Uh, Eric? When you were writing this, did you picture your characters in your head, and how did they look to you physically? I don't ever picture characters visually in my head, um, except really generic. That's true of human characters, too. Um, and if you look at anything I've written, you'll never get a very clear description of a character, just enough to sort of... I basically think it's better for the reader to fill that in. Um, so I don't really... Um, I don't really visually imagine a character. I'm more trying to imagine what their mental state is or what the hell they think. Um, and, you know, I mean, you're obviously going to make some physical descriptions, big, small, you know, muscular, not fat, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't really try to uh, go in much detail. And, and I don't even think that way either myself. So, I mean... Uh, to give you an example from the work I've done much more, which is the 1632 series, somebody asked me not too long ago what Mike Stearns looked like. He's the hero of the whole thing. I said, I have no idea. Uh, really. I don't. I mean, you know, he's tall. He's, he's pretty muscular. He used to be a boxer. He's, he's described as handsome, sort of, but not in a, you know, sort of pretty way. Um, and I just leave it at that. I think we think of him as like a really bulked up. He's described uh, as beautiful, but exactly how that works, I don't go any further. I just don't. Let readers figure it out. I think what's going to happen is readers are going to imagine it themselves anyway, so I think it's better to let them do it. And I just don't think that way. I don't. You know, we all picture Mike Stearns as sort of a bulked up Eric Flint, you know. (laughs) That's our mental. Yeah, he looks just like you, but taller. (laughs) Yeah. 
I, I do actually have, insofar as I ever do imagine him, there, I had, <laughs> in high school, um, I was bullied a lot in, um, in, as a, as a ninth and 10th grades because I was a kid from the big city living in a rural area and I really didn't fit in. And at one point, one of the two toughest kids in school, he was a senior, he came up to me and he made an offer to me, which is that he'd be my bodyguard if I'd write his papers for him because he wanted to graduate that year. And he was actually a smart guy, but he just really goofed off at school. So that was the deal we cut. I'd wrote all his papers for him. And he'd be my bodyguard. And it was understood that if the kids are my own size, that was, you know, he wasn't my bully. If kids are my own size, it was up to me to fight him. But if the older kids got on me, he'd take care of it, which he did. Uh, he only had to do it once, and after that, they all stayed well the hell, hell away from me. And I've always had a very soft spot in my heart for this guy. And uh, he was kind of a cheerful rogue. And insofar as I ever do think about Mike Stearns, what he looks like, he'd be a little bit like that guy. Uh, but I don't think much about it. Yeah. Uh. Can I, Misty and Cody? Can I? What? Uh, what's your process? Do you? Um, are you very visual um, while you're working on this? Uh, for this one in particular, we actually uh, try to come up with a distinctive look for the entire clan. The clan is the long thing. And what Misty came up with was podcast. So they're a little bit more visually distinctive in that way. But as far as like the individuals, I never really had like. Yeah. A real set, okay, this is the face of Sartus rule, this is the face of Regent. Did you actually make drawings? Uh, no, we didn't make drawings, but, uh, you know, we did some research, basically uh, looking at uh, different pictures, uh, videos, so on and so forth. Um, for some of our other series, what we'll do is do like a dream casting sort of thing. Well, if I had to have a movie made of this, who would I want to have play this character? And sometimes it's an amalgamation of... Uh, different people or no one at all. But, um, yeah, I'd say, you know, usually we do uh, try and figure out what our character would look like to yeah, get visualization for that. In this case, well, I, the problem is when you're doing something from someone's p point of view, which we generally do third-person point, uh, personal point of view, there's no good way for you to look at your own face. So it's kind of hard for you to describe yourself. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of a mystery uh, that I read a, a, a long while back where the main character stops. This is one of these mystery, mystery series where the author breaks the fourth wall all the time. So the main character stops, looks at himself in the mirror, and you get the description of what he looks like, and then he thinks. And someday authors will come up with a better way of describing their characters besides having, looking, having them look in a mirror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bill, what's happening with the series? Um, what what do we have in store? Well, we have two things in store. We're reissuing the original four novels, one of which is by me and another author, and one of which is by Diane Duane and her husband. And they should be available as e-books by the, probably by this broadcast actually getting out, certainly by May. And we're talking with Tony about uh, having yet another one because we haven't gotten the Merem home yet. Well, you got the whole Mediterranean to get around, right? <laughs> yes, yes. They're somewhere in Morocco, and they need to end up in Greece. It's a long walk. Yeah. I see many sequels. <laughs> and I hope you are all around to write them uh, for 
for many years because we enjoy selling them. Uh, the book is by Tooth and Claw, edited by Bill Fawcett, and featuring braided novellas or just novellas in the same world by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and Jody Lynn Nye. Uh, folks, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you, everyone. It was a lot of fun. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents. In each generation, more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Faye had jumped 152 times in the last four minutes. She'd counted, and that damn ninja cow bitch had stayed with her every step of the way. The two of them appeared at the very tip of the Tokugawa where the three balloons came together. Lightning crashed and rain pounded as the other battleship loomed right overhead like a big black shadow. A single white biplane screamed past, being chased by ten black ones, all shooting, and the white biplane exploded in a ball of fire. The old pirate ship had been shot so many times that most of its gas had leaked out and it was gradually crashing into the side of the flagship. Her head map told her that men were dying all around her and a strange magic energy was building in the center of the ship, which could only be coming from the big, evil, magic super bomb. Faye was gasping for breath. She'd lost her shotgun after using it to club a passing officer in the face, not that it mattered since she'd gone through all her shells by that point. She'd been counting travels, but she'd lost track of how many people she'd killed, shot, stabbed, maimed, pushed overboard, set on fire, or blown up. She was armed now with a meat cleaver that she'd picked up in the kitchen. It was still dripping blood from where she'd taken off a sailor's hand. Toshiko had dogged her the whole time. The ninja was panting almost as hard as Faye was. Her magic kanji were burning so hot that the rain hitting her instantly exploded into steam. Faye had shot at her, but she was always one step ahead. She'd pulled the pins out of grenades and dropped them, hoping that Toshiko would travel right into them, but she'd been too smart for that and would always travel outside the blast zone. The ninja raised her sword in a salute. You are the finest traveler I've ever known. Toshiko said simply. And you're still a big mean cow, Faye answered, not that she was being honest. Cows were wonderful creatures. Imperium assassins, not so much. Ugly and mean. 
Surely you're almost out of magic by now? Toshiko hissed. I have direct lines to the power granted by the chairman and his finest wizards. You have none. You cannot possibly outlast me. Faye checked. She still felt the same as ever. Physically she was bushed, but magically she was fine. I'm just getting warmed up. Let's finish this child so I can get to killing your friends. Toshiko had an evil smile. That gives me an idea. Let's see if you can keep up with me this time. No. Toshiko traveled. Faye checked her head map. There. The ninja was in the control room of the pirate ship. She yanked her sword out of the driver's back in a spray of blood. The bald pirate captain was turning as she swung her sword at his face, but Faye crashed into her forearm. No, you don't, Faye shouted in her ear. Toshiko grinned savagely as she traveled out of Faye's grasp. Faye screamed as her clothing burst into flames. Some pirate woman had just set her on fire. Not me, stupid, she shrieked as she traveled. She caught Toshiko a short distance above, balancing on the slick top of the flaming pirate ship. The crashing rain dashed out the fire on her clothing. Her feet squished into the balloon fabric, once hard with gas but now falling apart. They were about to hit the Tokugawa. Toshiko swung her sword, but Faye appeared behind her, trying to put the cleaver into her back. The two danced steel swinging, both disappearing and reappearing so fast that Faye was only moving on unconscious instinct. The ninja had been trained how to fight with a sword, and Faye hadn't, and the steel drove through her calf. She screamed as she toppled, sliding down the edge of the balloon. Hydrogen fire was licking up to meet her. She had to outwit Toshiko somehow, something crazy. She traveled as she entered the flames. Faye hit the metal engine housing on all fours. The giant propeller was screaming only inches away, a huge black blur that would destroy her instantly. Maybe Toshiko's head map wouldn't be as accurate, and the ninja appeared on the next engine over and waved. Damn it! Faye screamed in frustration. Toshiko mouthed something, but she couldn't be heard over the roar of the propeller, but she just knew that she was going to go kill some of her friends. The shadow guard disappeared, but Faye was right behind her. Lance was on the deck, hunkered down behind one corner, rainwater pouring off the edges of his big hat as he fired his Winchester at the approaching Imperium troops. Francis was off to the other side, smoothly working the bolt of his Enfield. Look out! Faye screamed. But where was... And then she gasped as the sword hit her square in the small of the back. Faye rolled forward through the water. Toshiko stood over her, blade gleaming overhead, and the ninja was triumphant, knowing that she'd just struck a lethal blow. Faye! Lance shouted, but Faye was already traveling. She folded space and fell through, landing on her face in a puddle of water on top of the tempest, only a few feet from where she'd taken her oath. Toshiko appeared, gloating. You can't run when you can't feel your legs. I felt my wakizashi bite the bone. Pity. I have no doubt that if you were with us, you'd be the first amongst the shadow guard. Faye was coughing, lying on her back. 
She reached around behind her and found the little Ivor Johnson 32, her faithful little companion that she'd bought in Merced for ten dollars, the same amount of money that Grandpa had bought her for. The mighty sword blow had nearly cut it in half. Once again, her life had been saved by ten bucks. Oh, that wasn't my spine, but you really messed up my gun. Toshiko finally lost it. She screamed in fury as Faye traveled. Faye appeared, falling in midair right in front of the astonished Lance. Shoot me, Faye screamed. To his credit, Lance Talon didn't hesitate. He lifted the three fifty one Winchester and pulled the trigger. Toshiko appeared behind her, still screaming, but, according to the ninja's map, the area had been clear, safe, and a tenth of a second before it had been. Time seemed to slow to nothing as Faye's head map recorded everything in the universe. The bullet traveled from the barrel, straight and true, and Faye only needed to fold space a tiny bit to get out of the way, and it was almost as if she could watch the bullet rotating as it passed through the air she'd inhabited, past Toshiko's descending blade, and right into the shadow guard's chest. The bullet cleaved through her sternum, breaking and turning as it pulverized her heart, severed her spine, and flew out her back. The blood droplets and bone fragments seemed to hang suspended, intermingled between the raindrops, and then Faye reappeared off to the side. Time restarted. The ninja was looking at her as if to say, How the hell had that happened? But then the lights went out. Lance hit Toshiko twice more as she fell, even though she was already dead. Told you so, cow. Faye went to her knees, swooning from blood loss. She felt Francis's strong hands on her, and the next thing she knew, she was in his arms and he was carrying her away from the gunfire. Chapter 25 I must tell you, Kermit, of these three particularly remarkable heavies amongst the volunteers. They come from brave stock, as their father had been with me during the advance on Kettle Hill. Though all three are exceedingly similar physical specimens, these Sullivan brothers could not be of more disparate temperaments. One is a simpleton with the gentle soul of a child, yet a more diligent soldier you could not ask for. One is a killer of men, a force of calculated belligerence. I fear he is only obedient to his officers because a discharge would jeopardize his opportunity to murder more Huns. The last is a thoughtful young man, the quietest of the three. He shows great promise as a leader. Never before in all my years of campaigning have I come across such stalwart troops. I tell you, son, the three are a terror to behold in battle, and if I had a thousand more Sullivans... This war would already be won. General Theodore Roosevelt, personal correspondence posted before Second Battle of the Somme, 1918. Imperium Flagship Tokugawa Maddie was waiting at the end of the twenty-foot-wide catwalk. He had been joined by two other iron guards, the wretched Lazarus, Hiroyasu, and the stalwart Nobunaga, a brute who was also the chairman's champion sumo wrestler. Sumo was another weird Jap obsession that Maddie had never gotten into. He found the whole thing kind of queer, with men pushing and slapping on each other in loincloths, but 
Nobunaga had been a tough guy before he'd picked up a half-dozen kanji to increase his already formidable strength and vitality. Behind the three iron guards was the engineering section's torch and twenty of the strongest marines on board. Of course, it was his brother that appeared at the far end of the catwalk first. Jake looked a little scary in the red light, the foreign invader surrounded by the giant heaving bags of gas, and for just a moment, it was like the bags were lungs and the Tokugawa was a great living creature. Jake was the disease infecting it, and he was the cure. Maybe I should start writing poetry, Maddie said. Huh? Nobunaga grunted. Nothing. Beneath the catwalk was a two-hundred-foot drop to the armored section that separated the two top hulls from the bottom one. There were a few ladders that went all the way down, but he had a feeling that anybody who went over this rail in the next few minutes wouldn't be taking a ladder. Hiroyasu, fall back and animate the marines as they die. Marines, stay behind cover and use your rifles. Choose your shots carefully. Do not let anyone through. Protect the torch. We don't want to fire in here. Nobunaga, on me. Jake just stood there in the center of the doorway a hundred yards away, watching. Come and get me, Jake, Maddie whispered. The geotel had already been activated and the power was gathering, but his brother would be dead long before it fired and he'd make sure this time. A short, balding, pudgy, bespectacled man joined his brother in the doorway. The man scowled as if sizing up the engineering section's defenses. Maddie recognized him. In fact, he'd even shot him recently. Damn grimdoir vermin they were harder to get rid of than cockroaches. The man cracked his knuckles. He'd been a little woozy from all the hits he'd taken at Mar Pacifica. What had that lump's power been? And then he remembered. Marines, cover your ears, he shouted, but it was already too late. The mouth had started talking. It wasn't a voice. It was a voice. It was too big to come from a man. It came from a god. It didn't sound in his ears. It was like an ice pick driven through his skull and twisted around inside his brain. Maddie ground his teeth together so hard that some of them broke. He had to steady himself against the railing to keep from falling. His accent was off. The pronunciation was terrible. But apparently Japanese wasn't this god's first language. Omaetachi wa kotei o shitsubou saseta. Watashi no meo wa hijou ni kizutsuite. Watashi ga dekiru kotowa mohaya jiketsu shikanai. Maddie could feel his own will surging against the command, but behind him, he could hear the bayonets clearing their scabbards and a scream as the torch turned his fire inward and burned himself to a crisp. You have failed your emperor. I am deeply ashamed. The only honorable solution is immediate suicide. No, stop, it's a trick. But the blades flashed and his men died, gurgling and choking. The terrible influence waned and his head cleared. Maddie let go of the railing, having bent the pipe with his fingers. Only the iron guards had been strong enough to resist. 
Nobunaga had drawn his Nambu pistol, but Maddy clamped down on his wrist. No guns. The other Iron Guard's eyes widened in understanding. With their torch dead, they couldn't risk shooting in here. Maddy turned back to his brother. Jake was still standing there in a big black coat. The mouth was at his side. A blonde man in gray appeared to Jake's left, and then he was joined by a female zombie to his right. The four walked forward together, side by side, ready to fight. He could still beat all of them by himself without making so much as a spark. Plus, he still had an extremely powerful brute, and already Hiroyasu was using his power to raise the disemboweled marines. Jake and his grim noir were still dead, but they'd just have to do it the hard way. He started walking. They'd meet in the middle. Come on. That had been one of the most impressive displays of raw power that Sullivan had ever seen. Daniel Garrett hadn't just been fueled by his magic, but also by desperation, hate, and the burning desire to save the woman he loved. Dan was gray and shaking, sweat pouring down his face, and he looked like he might fall over. I didn't know you spoke Japanese, Heinrich said as he joined them. Just that one? Been practicing, Dan grimaced. It physically hurt to channel that much power at once. I can't make people do something they wouldn't normally do. But these Imperium elites are so honor-bound, I figured it was worth a shot. Delilah stepped up next. She was weaving as badly as Dan, but for an entirely different reason. The Lazarus who made me. He's inside. I can feel him. He's going to wake the dead. The UBF normals were hanging back. This fight was way beyond them. In fact, now that they were down to just iron guards immune to his magic and unable to use his guns, their mouth was out of his league, too. Dan, why don't you just take the others and go look for your girl? The Geotel comes first he stated with firm determination. Jane would hate me if she found out I let a million people die to save her first. Come on, Sullivan said. The device had been activated. He could feel it within like its dreadful magic was beating against his own inside his ribcage. They started walking. Maddie was dressed in some sort of red and black samurai robe the traditional look thrown off only by the big revolver hanging in his shoulder holster. Next to him was a similarly attired, short yet incredibly broad man with a round face and a topknot. Look, they got the fat one, Heinrich said. That's not fat, Dan answered. That's a sumo. Sumo, shmumo, Delilah said. I'm about to whoop his ass. The others didn't realize it yet, but he knew that his brother was too powerful to defeat, especially in a limited amount of time. No matter what happens, get to that device. He dared not share his plan because he was worried that Maddie could already hear them. Sullivan looked at Delilah out of the corner of his eye. I'll always love you. Just remember your promise she whispered, and then she pushed her power so hard that she seemed to grow. 
He'd never seen her do anything like that before. She was holding nothing back, running so much magic through her tissues that she was sure to destroy them when the magic wore off. There was no reason to hold back anything now. Both sides charged. Sullivan let loose with his magic the same time Maddie did. Two conflicting gravitational fields collided between them. The air rippled like water. Delilah charged through the distortion, screaming. The sumo bellowed in return and hurled himself at her. He dwarfed her, and Kanji could be seen glowing through the open neck of his robe. At the last second, Delilah dodged to the side, extended her arm like a clothesline, and hit the iron guard in the throat. His head snapped back, momentum still carrying him forward, and his feet flew out from under him. The landing was hard enough to shake the entire catwalk. Maddie extended one hand, and Delilah fell into the air. Heinrich leapt over the downed sumo and went at Maddie swinging. Maddie threw one mighty fist clean through Heinrich's chest as the German went gray. Heinrich came out the other side and slugged Maddie in the back of the head. Maddie didn't seem to notice it, but gravity changed again, and Heinrich was slammed to the metal floor. He cried out under the crushing force. Fade out, Sullivan shouted. Heinrich fell through the floor and Sullivan slammed his power against Maddie's field. The extra gravities were forced away from Heinrich, leaving the German hanging by his hands under the catwalk. The sumo was sitting up despite Dan futilely punching him in the face. Sullivan roared and headed straight at Maddie as Delilah rebounded off the railing behind him. Sullivan slammed a big fist into Maddie's jaw, then the other, then threw out a boot and kicked Maddie in the stomach. The iron guard didn't even seem to feel it, and one hand shot out and grabbed Sullivan around the throat. He dragged Sullivan in close, crushing off his air. I'm the strongest there is. You understand me? The strongest! You'll never make it past me. Never! Sullivan used his power, increasing his density, protecting his throat. Ah, oh, no. The railing creaked around them. He spiked hard, slamming as much force onto them as he could muster. Maddie threw it back, just as he had in Mar Pacifica, but his eyes widened as he realized that Sullivan wasn't trying to crush him, but what was underneath. Jake! Delilah screamed as a perfect circle of catwalks sheared away and the two of them fell. They dropped like a pair of stones. Jake kept striking Maddie in the face, and Maddie hit him back with bone-jarring force, but both of them were running as dense as iron. The armor plate floor barely slowed their descent, and they ripped clean through the steel, crashing through beams and supports, tearing wires, and then ripping through the bottom hydrogen hull. They fell through the gas, in an empty, totally lightless space, kicking, punching, throwing knees and elbows, in a free-fall brawl to the death, Sullivan held his breath. Fighting through the pain, Sullivan flared his power again. He didn't want to fall through the bottom of the dirigible. Maddie must have realized the same thing, and together they slowed, but still trying to kill each other. The bottom of the hydrogen chamber barely impeded them, and then they were rebounding through more materials, aluminum, steel, copper, and finally wood. Sullivan threw his hand out and caught hold of something as Maddie tore free and kept falling. His brother crashed through one last darkened floor, highlighted in a circle of sudden light but shrinking away. 
Maddie flared his power before impact and landed in a heap far below. He'd ended up in some giant wooden room. There were other people down there, and a circle of curiosity was closing in on Maddie's fallen form. Sullivan let go and followed. He landed in a crouch, boards splintering, reaching for the rifle slung on his back, but it was gone, torn free from its sling somewhere above. He reached instead for his pistol, and luckily it was still in its flap holster. The iron guard came up off the floor, snarling. Sullivan was able to crank off four rounds before Maddie threw a backhand that would have taken the arm off a normal man. The forty-five went flying away. Sullivan stepped back, shaking his stinging arm. Four holes began to drizzle blood down the front of Maddie's torn robe. His brother stopped, looking around, realizing where he was. Well, I'll be damned. Ain't this appropriate. The room was huge and mostly bare, probably some sort of training room. The walls were glass, and beyond them was nothing but darkness. The floor was polished hardwood. He turned slowly. There was a mess of imperium in this room, dressed in black uniforms with red accents and a big red sash. All of them were pointing guns at Sullivan, except for the ones that were ready to destroy him with the ice crystals collecting down their arms or the jagged bones twisting between their hands, or the electricity cracking in their eye sockets, or the floating objects that they'd telekinetically picked up with their minds. He was in a room full of iron guards. Well, shit, Sullivan said. <clears throat> Someone gave a polite cough, and both he and Maddie turned at the same time. Chairman, Maddie exclaimed, sounding embarrassed, just like back when Dad used to catch the oldest Sullivan brother doing something bad, like torturing animals or setting fires. He dropped to his knees. Forgive the intrusion. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a get-out-of-a-cataclysmic-extinction-event-free card along with a wise-cracking dinosaur comic from the woolly rhino-filled Poconos singing thanks and praise in that kind of keening falsetto for which they are famous. For Mercedes Lackey, Eric Flint, Jody Lynn Nye, Cody Martin, and Bill Fawcett, creators of By Tooth and Claw. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.